2 Corinthians 8. So if you have a Bible, open up. If you're able to stand, let's, let's uh, stand. I'm going to read the Word of God out loud together. 2 Corinthians 8, starting at verse 1. I'm going to read down to verse 15. Uh, after I read it, I'll say, this is the Word of the Lord. And you say, thanks be to God. So starting in verse 1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches in Macedonia. For a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy, and in their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor, or charis, or grace, the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that he, as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith and speech and love, I'm sorry, in knowledge and in all uh, earnestness and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that, through, that though he was rich, for, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. And in this matter, I give my judgment. This benefits you, um, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness and desiring may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For the readiness is there... It is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burden, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need, um, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, whoever had lack had, or whoever gathered little had no lack. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's, let's be seated. Let's pray. Lord, we uh, ask for a special measure of grace this morning as we look at this particular text. I pray that you help me, God, um, say um, everything that's true and accurate. I pray that you help me teach this, um, this text so that it's clear and easy to understand, um, that the Holy Spirit comes into this room now and fills me and fills all of us so that we can hear and receive what you have for us, that we'll be equipped and that more than anything, Lord, that as we um, each week gather, that we see the good news of Jesus um, on the cross for us for the give, forgiveness of our sins. And that, amen. So, um, we are finished as of last week with chapters 1 through 7. Um, as I said many times, this book is divided kind of into three sections. Chapters 1 through 7 is where Paul is defending his apostolic position, wanting to make sure that they reconcile with each other, the Corinthians and him. There had been a little bit of a, um, I wouldn't call it a dispute, but some false apostles had come in and bad-mouthed Paul and said some bad things about Paul. And so he knew that that wasn't right. He had, re- he had sent a letter before this one, a severe letter, kind of rebuking them. And he's wanting to reconcile, and he's wanting to bring them together. But he's also wanting to know, that, hey, I, I am an apostle here. So as I speak, you should listen to the words I have, etc. And the chap- chapters 1 through 7 is that entire section. We've just finished all of that, hearing the good news of the gospel and seeing how reconciliation is possible. Now, chapter 8 and 9 is a new section, and then 10 through 13 is another. But 8 and 9 is the section we're looking at over the next few weeks. Uh, 10 through 13, 
Paul has some closing challenges of new things that he wants to make sure he's talking about with the Corinthian church. But here we are, new section, chapter 8 and 9. What's going on? What's going on is this. Paul, he's on his missionary journey, and he's heading back to Jerusalem. And as he's heading back to Jerusalem, um, he knows that when he gets there, there are some really poor, new Jewish Christians that really need financial help. And so as he's on his missionary journey, he's going from city to city to city. And recently he's in Greece, and so he was just up in northern Greece and Macedonia. And now he's coming down to southern Greece in Corinth. And he's saying, listen, I was just up in Macedonia. They were unbelievably generous for this offering I'm taking up to go help the people back in Jerusalem. And now I'm going to be coming to you, and I'm writing this letter, and I want you to know what they did. And so when you hear what they did, you're going to be like, that's amazing. I want to be motivated to give like the Macedonians, us down here in Corinth. And so he's telling them that I'm coming, and I'm going to be taking up an offering, and I'm going to be taking this offering to the Jewish Christians down in Jerusalem. And he want, he's wanting to let them know about the offering. So that's where we are in chapters 8 and 9 as Paul is talking about this, this offering that he's taking up where he's on his missionary journey. So when he goes back to Jerusalem, he's got money to give to those Jewish Christians. And, and we're going to get to it, but basically he's saying, they really need help and you have the means. You never know. One day this reverse, the, the, the situation could be reversed and you really need help and they could have money and they can help you. But we're going to get to that. But that's where we are in chapter 8 and 9. We've come to this section where Paul is talking about, after the relationship is fixed, that he is going to appeal to the Corinthians to give to this offering. Now, his appeal is not based on guilt. You should never make an appeal to a Christian based on guilt because then they just feel bad and they do it for a couple weeks and then it wears off. And so that's not what he's going to do. He's not going to appeal to them through guilt. Instead, he's going to appeal to them through the gospel. And that's the way that we should always make our appeals. Not by law, but instead by gospel. And so he's going to uh, appeal to them in, in, uh, by the gospel, wanting to help them understand what gospel-centered generosity looks like. So that's what this is. We're talking about understanding. Go back, go back, go back. We're not there. Stay at the title. Understanding gospel-centered generosity. That's what Paul is wanting to appeal to them. He's wanting them to be generous, but he's wanting them to do it in regard to the gospel. Now, let's make sure we understand as a kind of a still in the introduction mode what, we, what we're saying here because you maybe have grown up in church and you've heard, okay, so I get 100% of my money and God gives it to me and then I take 10% and I give it to him, and the other 90 is for me, and I can do whatever I want. And so uh, I, that's not the best way to think about when it comes to your resources. 100% of the money that you have is still God's, okay? And so you have to uh, pick out the percentage according to your conscience with the Holy Spirit of that you want to give. Usually people start at 10%, but the other 90 or whatever other percentage you still have, that's still God's. And we still have a responsibility to use it in a way that honors God, too. It's not like, God, you can do what you want with that. This is all for me. Party time. Woohoo! No, no, this is all God's, and I have to honor God with every single bit of it. I do give some to my local church, but I also have to spend this in a way that is God-glorifying. And so uh, we, we have to make sure we start with that. And so um, it's not intended to be legalistic, uh, but we need to have that, obviously, giving to the church as 10% is a good starting place, but maybe, you know, by the power of the Holy Spirit, you can give more than that. Or maybe the Holy Spirit saying, right now you need to give less than that, and that's still a good place for you. So, um, but here's the principle that should make our way into our conversation. What I think Paul's trying to say here in chapter 8, 1 through 15. Uh, so on a sermon on giving, I want to go ahead and lay it out from the beginning. And let's just put the big, huge, awkward sentence out there. Here it is. You ready? Here's the big, awkward sentence. 
Here's the main point that Paul's making in the text. It's, it's controversial. It, it could be if you don't like sermons on giving. It's this. The quantity of our giving, the quantity of our giving should match the quality of our changed hearts. And we know what God has done to us and made us into a new creation. So the quality of our changed hearts is massive. It's unbelievably huge. The quantity of our giving should match the quality of our changed hearts. In other words, if the gospel has so transformed us and made us new and given us forgiveness forever, well then our desire to be generous should also just be enormous. That's, that's the principle that we're walking into here. I hope it's not awkward yet. So here we go. I know that sermons on giving aren't necessarily fun for anybody, but they don't have to be awkward. I think that they actually can be super helpful. So um, that's what we're going to look at today. Paul here is helping us understand gospel generosity. And there's five kind of sections in that text that we just looked at that we're going to go through. So um, the first section has numerous subpoints. But then the other, two don't, the other four don't have any subpoints. But the reason why the first one does is because he wants us to really understand what gospel-centered generosity looks like. And then he's going to make his case. And so that's what we're looking at. So starting in verse 1. Starting in verse 1. Verses 1 through 5 is the very first thing on understanding. You can go to number 1 now. Is the example of generous giving. And we're going to look at the aspects of gospel-centered generosity. So remember, when we get to verse 1... Paul's going to, he's writing this letter to Corinth and he's saying, listen, I'm coming to you and I really, really want you to join on this offering. And Corinth, you actually have a pretty good bit of money, but I'm coming from Macedonia and they don't have a lot of money. They don't have a lot of money at all. And they were super generous to be able to give to this offering when I go to Jerusalem. So when I come to you, I want you to look at the Macedonians, Corinthians, and say, well, since they were so generous, I want to be generous as well. And so looking at verse 1, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace. So he's going to, there's a theme here of grace that he's going to say about the grace of God that has been given among the churches in Macedonia. I want you to know what happened up there in northern Greece. Because in a severe test of affliction and their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty, they overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. I mean, they really gave those Macedonians. Corinthians, for they gave according to their means, and I can testify, beyond their means, of their own accord. They did it willingly. It was voluntary. And look at this, begging us earnestly, Paul, just take up another offering from, send round two through. We want another one. For the favor, and that word favor is grace again, charis, for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints, for letting us be able to take care of what's going on in Jerusalem. And this is not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. So that's, that's his opening case. That's the example that he gives. And in those first five verses, he's going to lay out at least eight, I think, aspects of what gospel-centered generosity looks like. What gospel-centered generosity looks like. So here we go. 1A. 1A. Gospel-centered generosity is a grace of God. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God. Meaning, we should choose to obey God and be generous. And if we do, it's because God has worked a grace into our heart and caused us to do this. 
So when we are generous with our resources, God gets the glory, not us, because he has literally worked a grace into us because all of us are so depraved. We all, and then we give freely and of our own accord, lovingly sharing our resources. God has worked a grace in us. And so gospel generosity, when we have that happen, it's a grace of God. For you watching online, by the way, go to remedychurch.org slash worship. The whole outline's there. Don't y'all do it. You get it all, you're going to write it all down, you're not going to listen. You have to screen by screen with me in this room. But if you want to go to get the whole outline, remedychurch.org slash worship, you can see the whole thing if you can't see the screens. All right, so the first thing is that it's a grace of God. So if we're already uh, doing this, and we have been doing it for some time, we've already been practicing gospel-centered generosity, then God has worked a grace into our hearts already. And so we've, we've gotten to see that that's happening. So the application for us, when we look at gospel-centered generosity, the first aspect we need to realize is this is a grace of God in your life. You won't be able to do it without the grace of God in your life. I certainly won't. All right? So that's the first thing. The next aspect is B. Gospel-centered generosity transcends difficult circumstances. To A, to C. Um, for in a severe test of affliction, we're going to skip their abundant joy, and they're extreme, get under my feet financially, then I'll start giving. That's not true. It's just not true. As a matter of fact, the... The richer people get, the less they give. Mississippi, cheap, uh, uh, not cheapest, poorest state in the 50 states, most generous givers. Poor people, percentage-wise, give more than people who have money. So it's, it's just a myth. You will not give more once you finally get your feet under you financially. You won't. Trends are, we don't do that. And so... you. When we say it transcends difficult circumstances, what I mean is you don't need to get yourself out of poverty first so that you can start being generous. Because that's not what the Macedonians did. Wherever you are in your financial situation, you are supposed to be gospel-centered generous. And so it transcends difficult circumstances. And these circumstances are actually, they're not just poor, but they're also suffering. It says, in the severe test of affliction, they had been persecuted for their faith and extreme poverty. They had nothing. Even though all that was happening, they gave. Meaning our financial status or our trial, we are not excluded from practicing gospel-centered generosity. We are in the same boat with everybody else if, if we're having a trial or if we don't have a lot of money right now. And we should not think just because we don't have a lot of money that we can't be generous. That's the whole point when Jesus sees the woman putting in her last two copper coins and he says, this is good. So gospel-centered generosity transcends difficult circumstances. Whether you're trials or whether you're poor, you still, all of us still, have to, have to be a part of this. And so with people with lots of money and no trials, then you should give. And people that have uh, no money... And lots of trials you should give. Gospel-centered generosity is for everyone. That's the second aspect. Third aspect, right back there, in a severe test of affliction and their abundance of joy. Third aspect of gospel-centered generosity is, number C, letter C, gospel-centered generosity is done with joy. This is not something, when we give, that we're supposed to be super sad about. Instead, we're supposed to be super excited about. How sad is it that, that some think... Um, that they should not be unbelievably joyful when they get to take part of giving their resources, big or small, and give them to other people. 
that they're sad when they do it. How, how crazy is that? Why would we be sad if, when we get to give away our resources? The only thing I can think of is because we don't have them anymore. I don't have them anymore. And what would that say about my heart if I don't have it anymore? I should be happy that I got to help someone else rather than just say, I really need this right here right now. Um, so gospel-centered generosity should be a joyous thing. Gospel-centered generosity should be a joyous thing. So we've seen so far that it's a grace of God. It transcends your difficult circumstance. It doesn't matter where you are uh, in your trials or your poverty or your richness or no trials. It also is to be done with joy. Now, the next thing, watch this. A test of affliction and abundance of joy and their extreme poverty. And it says they, what is that word? Overflowed. Overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Which means, number four, D, whatever. Gospel centered generosity is lavish. It's lavish. Whenever we give, we should want to give in a lavish, that there is to be an overflow. So whenever you give, give a little bit extra so that you're lavishing someone with what's going on. It's um, overflow is pericio. It's translated as abundance, meaning uh, not just enough. You don't give just enough. You give an abundance. You lavish them. It's not just what's needed and then you stop. It's literally overflow. It's abundance. It's more than's needed. So they need this. I'm going to give you this and a little bit extra. That's, that's what gospel-centered generosity is. It's not just getting right up to the need and stopping. It's saying, I'm going to give you not just what you need, but even more. I'm going to give you more. What does Christ do for us? He gives us an abundant life. And so that's the same, that's the same principle. When, it, when we talk about this. So they overflowed with a wealth of generosity on their part. And then you can see in verse 3, for they gave according to their means. And they gave not just according to the means, but beyond their means. So if we give according to our means, that's not sacrificial. But they didn't just give according to their means. They gave beyond their means. That's part E. Gospel centered generosity is sacrificial. It's sacrificial. When I give you this, it's going to cost me something. It's not just, I give you this, but I'm still good. Gospel-centered generosity is designed to also be not just at our means, but beyond sometimes our means, which means if you ever give beyond your means, that's faith. All right, so there's a certain amount of money. Let's say I had a certain amount of money in my hands, and I know I need some of it. And I give you some, and I know I'm okay. And I give you some more, I know I'm okay. And I give you some more, and I know I'm okay. There's a point where the the, the next dollar I give, I'm like, okay, now i got to trust God. I'm at the point now where I just crossed over the line of, I don't know how I can do what I need to do right now. That's sacrificial. We've crossed over to where, okay, that was beyond my means. And that means now I get to trust God. That's gospel-centered generosity. It's, it's a place to where now I am going to exercise faith in God. Because if we don't get there, then there's no trust in God there. It's just trusting in me still. And so that's not what we're talking about. You, we give to a place to where, you know that. I don't know that. You know that. The Holy Spirit shows you that. There's no legalism here. We're not, we're not motivated by guilt. We're motivated by the gospel. But there's a place to whatever it is that you are giving to where, okay, 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 no problem. Hmm, that's, that's going to take some faith. That's where God wants us. He wants us to trust him. He wants us to trust him. That might be 3%. That might be 20%. I don't know. You know that. I don't know that. But what, I know what God wants from us is faith. 
He wants us to trust him. He doesn't want me to trust me. He wants us to trust in him. So don't trust in yourself. Instead, sacrificial. Paul told the Macedonians about the need of the poor Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. And they were so moved. They were so other focused. They wanted to help so badly that they were willing to do without things that they needed. Not to do without things they wanted. They were willing to do without things that they needed so that they could help. I need these things. Getting rid of the things you want is no big deal. It's the things that you need. Sacrifice is giving up things that you need, not just the things that you want. Gospel-centered generosity is sacrificial. It's sacrificial. Not only that, or he says, for they gave according to their means that they could testify beyond their means. And here it is, that last little phrase, of their own accord. That's number F. Gospel-centered generosity is always voluntary. It's voluntary. This, you decide or told you to, in, in a sense. I mean, your, your pastors have authority. We are the under-shepherds of the church, and we do carry authority, yes. But everything we say should be lined up with Scripture, and, and you should discern through the Holy Spirit if we're saying. But they did it on their own accord. Gospel generosity is not based on guilt. It's based on the gospel, and it's voluntarily. You should not feel coerced, forced, pressured, strong-armed, bullied to be generous. If you're feeling coerced, strong-armed, bullied to be generous, that's not good. Instead, you don't give out of guilt. You give based on the abundance of grace of Christ in the gospel. Think of the, the gospel. The abundance of grace that he's given us, we give out of that. More on that coming when we get to verse 9, when he grounds it with a foundation. But gospel generosity is always voluntary. Keep going. Begging us earnestly for the favor, for the for the caress, for the grace of taking part of the relief of the saints. They're literally like, Paul, you've told us of this need. Please ask me for more money. I want to do more. Just take up a second offering. Schmeagle, play the, play the guitar some more. Like, get it going again. Let's do it some more. Um, in other words, they see this favor, this caress in their life, begging us to them for it. Therefore, they see it. this is a privilege we have. This is, a, this is a privilege we get to be a part of this. Gospel, sin, and generosity is always a privilege. It's always a privilege. That's number G. I need some more water. Gospel, sin, and generosity is a privilege. They're begging for the, for the caress. Look at the heart of these givers. They see this opportunity and they beg for the favor. Give me this favor. Give me this privilege. Give me this grace, Paul. They understand that it's a privilege to get to give like this and they want to be a part of it. Lastly, the last little aspect of gospel-centered generosity is in verse 5. And this is not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God. You can see this is all an act of worship for them. Point H. Gospel-centered generosity is an act of worship unto God. Whenever we give, it's an act of worship. We should never consider anything less. Whenever we are generous, it is an act of worship unto God. This is why in worship you'll hear me say... As we're going through the service, you'll hear me say, we've worshiped through the word, and now we're going to worship in singing and giving. We're going to worship as we take the Lord's Supper and receive the grace of the gospel in that. But we're also, as we do that, we're going to worship through singing, and then we'll worship through giving. Because giving is always an act of worship. Whenever we give, it's an act of worship. And so our giving, since that's the case, is an act of, when we're generous, is an act of worship unto God. And we should, we should, we should be happy about that. Yes, as I, as I write uh, as I write a check to the church for uh, my weekly giving or as I give this money to help this, this family in the church that needs help, as I do those things and I'm overflowing with generosity, 
this is actually worship for me to the Lord to do this. We should, we should know that. So those are the, those are the introductions to gospel-centered generosity. I think that we need to start there and get an aspect of what we're talking about. And then we're going to keep going through Paul's line of thinking here. Now, after he tells you everything, he's going to look right at us and he's going to say, how about you? You got it. That's it. That's what it is. Can you do it? So number two, the challenge. The challenge is coming down to us to be radical and excelling in gospel sin and generosity. That's what he's going to challenge us now. Number two is the challenge. Accordingly, as he says, we urge Titus that as he has started, he shall also complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, listen, Corinth, I was with you, and you got a lot of stuff down. You've got these things, faith, speech, knowledge, earnestness. We talked about that last week, how you're excelling in earnestness. You're excelling in these, all these places in sanctification. In, in your Christ, walk with Christ, look at how you're coming along when it comes to faith, when it comes to, um, when it comes to grace, when you can see all these things that you're excelling in. We want you to not only excel in faith and speech and knowledge, but we also want you to excel in this act of grace in giving. So there's the challenge to you, Corinthians. Don't just be sanctified in all these other aspects and not your money and your resources. We want you to also be um, excelling in sanctification in giving. That's what he's telling. You excel in everything, faith, speech, and love, and knowledge, and all earnestness, and our love for you. See that you excel in this act of grace also. So excel in this. And here's the challenge that he's given to them. Therefore, the Holy Spirit is challenging us. Paul challenges them to be like the Macedonians. Titus was there. He spoke to you about this. He told you how to be, um, excel in sanctification in regard to this. You're doing it in a lot of places, and I want you to excel in this as well. I've heard an old pastor say this many times. Many pastors, they say, the last thing that people um, we want to be sanctified. Trust Jesus with, it means we can trust Jesus with a lot of things. We can trust him with our eternity. We can trust him with our children. We can trust him with our spouse. We can trust him with our job and our city and my neighborhood, but I just can't trust him with my money. That's what we're saying whenever we can't practice gospel, sin, and trust. I can give him my eternity, my soul. I trust you with that. But I got I to gotta watch this over here, Jesus. I got to pay my bills my way. Uh, and now we want to make sure we realize this. Paul is not doing this out trying to guilt us. It's not a command, verse 8. I say this not as a command, not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others, that your blank is genuine. Now, that's interesting, right? Because if you didn't know the word love was there, you would think that he's going to say to prove that your salvation is genuine. That's not what he says. He says to prove that your love is genuine. What's our aim? 1 Timothy 1.5, what's our aim? The aim of our preaching is love. <laughs> 1 Timothy 1.5, our aim of our preaching is love. That's what the aim of our life is, is love. And he's grounding this whole work of generosity in the fact that we are supposed to be loving people. Not salvation. You're not proving that your salvation is genuine. He's, he's already granting that to the Corinthians. He's already granting that to us. He knows that we're Christians. He wants us to actually love people. He wants us to be genuine when it comes to being a believer. And that's shown by being loving and caring for other people. So he's challenging this Corinthian church to be radically gospel-centered, generous givers, led by the Holy Spirit, led by the Word, and he's challenging us. So here's the challenge to us. Determine right now, will you take up this challenge? Will you determine in your heart to say, 
Those are the aspects. Yes, I want to be a gospel-centered, generous giver. I'm going to take it up. Why would you not say yes to it? I don't know why. But if you're still wanting a reason, if you need a reason to say yes, Paul realizes that, and he brings us right to verse 9. Verse 9 is the gospel diamond in the middle. I've said the gospel is a diamond, and it's so beautiful. It's got a billion different angles. And we look at this angle, and we're like, oh, my goodness, that's amazing. You turn it, look at that. Oh, my goodness, it's beauty again. We're going to turn the diamond again, and we're going to see the gospel in uh, poverty to riches. That's what verse 9 is. So why would you not say yes to this? Here's why. I I know I keep saying gospel-centered generosity. Here's why I say gospel-centered. When we mean gospel-centered, we mean giving based on the good news of Jesus. Giving patterned after the good news of Jesus. Giving patterned after what Jesus did for us on the cross. How did Jesus die for us on the cross? I want to give that way. What is it that's about the way Jesus lived and died and was resurrected for the forgiveness of our sins? That's how I pattern my giving. How do you do that? You'll see. Here's how. Um, So why would you do this? Why would you practice gospel-centered generosity? Because everything is supposed to be rooted in the gospel. So Paul is going to, in number three here, make his argument. The reason why you should be gospel-centered in your generosity is because it's based and rooted in the gospel. That's verse 9. If you like to underline in your Bible, which I would recommend, because this, this isn't like, these aren't, Paul didn't write this, right? These are the translations. This isn't the actual piece of paper that Paul wrote on. Um, I wouldn't write on that one. Verse 9. See what he says here. For you know the grace. Now remember, he has a, this theme of grace that he keeps r- bringing up. And now he's going to tell us, here it is. But you know the grace, full name, he gets the full name here, of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though yet he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And he's not talking about money. He's not talking about money. The reason why he's not talking about money is, think about the Macedonians. It just blows out the idea of the prosperity gospel. They became Christians, and their life got worse, and they stayed poor. That just destroys the prosperity gospel. Coming to Jesus does not mean life gets better and you get rich. That's not what happened to the Macedonians. And so this verse should not be understood in the light of Jesus wants you rich. Rich financially is not what he means. He means rich in forgiveness. Jesus, whenever he became poor, made us rich in the fact that we are rich now because we are forgiven of our sin. So everything in this particular verse is beta and rusin. Based and rooted in the gospel. Before we read it, I want to read a quote from John MacArthur. He has this beautiful way that he understands verse 9. And this is what what he says. Tucked away in this very practical, pragmatic section of chapter 8 on a discussion on giving is a profound doctrinal treasure. Just like 2 Corinthians 5.21, this verse is a Christological gem. Christological means having to do with Christ. Christological gem of incalculable value. A multifaceted diamond that far outshines all other jewels around it. The wonder of this verse is captivating. Its vast scope, profundity, that just means it's profound. Profundity and impact transcend the simplicity of this 21 Greek words that compromise it. Its truth is not couched in technical theological language. 
Its words are not complex or confusing. And though its message may be grasped in one reading, the truth of it contains, contained therein may not be fully comprehended throughout all eternity. It describes Christ's descent from riches into poverty so that believers might ascend from poverty to riches. That's what's going on here in verse 9. And he's grounding everything about us being generous in the good news of Jesus. For you know, verse 9. For you know. That's amazing. He's talking to the Corinthians. They are a mess. And he is assuring them, you know the gospel. You know the gospel. Jesus himself is the example of how grace joyfully expresses itself in love. The aim of this is love, Corinthians. And if you want to know how to love, which we just saw in verse 8 is the point of this in gospel, sin, and generosity, Jesus himself is the expression of what that looks like. For you know, you have been loved by Jesus, Corinthians. Therefore, you know how to love others with, by being generous. And he says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul has used this word grace many times so far. And it's referring to this honor and this privilege that God has given to the Macedonians and letting now the Corinthians partake in this offering that he's doing. And he's saying, you know of the grace of our Lord Jesus. Gives him the full title. He's the Lord and he's the Messiah and he's Jesus, the one who takes away our sins. All those titles are important as you think on what he's done for you. And that, and here it is, that though he was rich for your sake, he became poor. This is not necessarily referring to Jesus's financial economic status while he was on earth, though technically it was true. He was in heaven and he was super rich. And when he came down here financially, he was super poor. Uh, Luke nine fifty seven through 60, birds of the nest have Birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He had a coat. That's what he owned. He walked around with his sandals and his coat and his cloak. That was it. He didn't own anything, but he owned everything, right? Because it was all his. So this is not referring to his economic status so much as it's referring to the incarnation. It's referring to the fact that he had riches beyond calculation in heaven, and as Philippians 2 tells us, he became poor. So it's talking about his existence before the incarnation. He was in the form of God, did not account equality with God, a thing to be grasped. Like he didn't hold on to that in heaven, but instead he was willing to let go of that. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself, or as Paul says it in the other, in Second Corinthians, he became poor. He humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Becoming poor here means he entered into this fallen world. He left heaven, which is a billion times infinitely better, to the end of the numbers, as Tristan would say. That's its infinite, infinity for him. He, that's, where, that's heaven coming here, leaving all the glory, all the honor, all the perfection of heaven and coming to earth and then becoming poor. He was rich and became poor. Now, he didn't lose richness but he still became poor because he entered into this falling world. Calvin, 
on Becoming Poor says, we see what destitution and lack of all things awaited Jesus right from his mother's womb. And we hear what he says, the foxes of the holes and the birds in the nest have air, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Luke 9, 58. Thus, he sanctified poverty in his own person so that believers should no longer shrink from it. And by his poverty, he has enriched us. I, I, I went past that. Let's make sure we hear that. Thus, Jesus sanctified poverty. Poverty is not evil. Jesus sanctified poverty so that believers should no longer shrink from it. Believers should not fear being poor. Jesus was poor. We can be poor, is what he's saying. Should no longer shrink. I'm not saying be mad if if you have money and just, well, I got to just flush it on the toilet yesterday. I'm not saying that, right? But don't don't be sad or feel like you're unsanctified if you're poor. That's the whole point he's saying. And by his poverty, he has enriched us that we should not find it hard. We should not, as Christians, find it hard to take from our abundance and that we expend it on the behalf of our other brothers and sisters in Christ. We shouldn't find that hard. That's what Calvin's saying. And so that's what it means when he's talking about Christ leaving heaven and becoming poor. We can, we can take that same example. But he's going to ground it in the gospel so that by his poverty you might become rich. Jesus' incarnation illustrates this grace that's been expressed to us in love that he was willingly give, willing to give up his own rights to meet the needs of others. He gave up his own rights to meet our need, which was we were treacherous sinners and needed to be forgiven. And now, because of Christ, we can be forgiven. This very simple gospel-centered statement is jam-packed with gospel goodness. And it's the basis and the ground that Paul uses to encourage us now to be gospel-centered, generous givers. Be like Jesus. Be generous. That's what he's saying. He was generous with his life. You can be generous with your money. The gospel is that God generously gave Jesus to his children because of their lostness and his love for us. Therefore, because and based on the gospel, we're to be like Jesus and give generously to others because of our love for God and our love for other people. And this collection that Paul is taking up for the Jerusalem church in front of the Corinthians is an opportunity. Think about this. It's an opportunity for Paul to teach the Corinthians Christology. I get to teach you Christology right now on giving because he was poor. He was rich. He became poor so that by his poverty, you might become rich. The gospel's effect teaches us to be radical givers like Jesus. So that's the argument. He bases it in the gospel in verse eight, uh, chapter 8, verse 9. Now, he has this next section where he's challenged us and he's told us why. And when we hear that, we're like, I'm going to do it. But it might wear off. And he's like, okay. And we're going to take care of that. That's what the next 10 through 12 is for. Encouragement. Encouragement. And here it is. Encouragement to endure and persevere in gospel-centered generosity. It might wear off. What if it stops? And here's what he says. And in this matter, I give my judgment. This benefits you. um, Who a year ago started not only do this work, but also desire to do it. So now finish. There's the encouragement. You had the desire You really wanted to do it, but you hadn't. And I'm telling you to finish it. Be a finisher. Jesus was a finisher. He endured all the way to the end to the cross. For the joy set before him, he went to the cross and endured it, scorning at shame, and was um, achieving our salvation for us. In the same way, we want to endure. We want to persevere with gospel-centered generosity. As he keeps saying, 
This benefits you a year you started, now you desire. So now finish doing it as well so that your readiness and desiring may be matched by your completing it out of what you've done. For the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according um, to what he does not have. So desire to do it and actually finish and complete it. We are really good at deciding I'm going to do that. And when I get home, I'm going I'm I'm to plan it out and it's going to happen, but then we don't follow through. And so he's encouraging us to persevere, meaning we're to be generous givers our whole life. We're to be generous givers our whole life, not just for a season, not just because I'm preaching through 2 Corinthians 8 today, and we'll be preaching in 2 Corinthians 9 two weeks from now, but instead we're to be generous givers always. The point of this section is this, God is calling us to be sacrificial, gospel-centered, generous givers for our lifetime, for our lifetime. So if you're ready to give, then don't just stay at the place of ready to give. Give. That's the point that he's telling you. Persevere to the end. Now, he brings it all to an end with point number five. And this is interesting. This is interesting. A final balance brought to the argument because there could be, wait a second. And so this part seems a little complicated. So to start with, let's just go ahead and read it one more time. And he says this, for... I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened. But that is a matter of fairness. Make it easier for other people and you take on the full brunt of it. Level it out. It's not necessarily what he's saying. Your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance um, may supply your need if it ever happens, that that happens, if the tables are turned. Uh, So there can be fairness. And then he says, as it is written, and then he quotes the Old Testament. Now, uh, let's, this section can be complicated. And when he says it, um, whoever gathered much had nothing left over. Whoever gathered little had no lack. So let let me explain this last little closing final balance he's bringing. And let's just say first, Paul is not making, if you're reading, you're like, wait a second. I know what that sounds like. Paul is not making a case for modern day socialism or Marxism. And just wipe that out. That didn't exist uh, so let's understand 14, and then provides support to his argument in verse 15. So when he makes it, I don't mean you should do this, you should do this, etc., as it is written, and then he quotes the Old Testament. So his case is made in 13 and 14, and he supports his case by quoting the Bible. So that means, this is what it means. When, when you have these little constructions in the, in, the, in the scriptures where this is what I mean for, and this is what I mean As it is written, here's the Bible text in the Old Testament to support that. That means what we need to do, the best way you can do that to understand what he's saying is understand the Bible text, understand it in its proper context in the Old Testament, take that proper understanding, put it right under that argument, understand how that works together, now understand what he's saying. That's the best way to do this. So what we should do is understand. Understand verse 15. Whoever gathered much had nothing left over. Whoever gathered little had no lack. Understanding that verse in its proper context will help us understand what Paul's saying in verses 13 and 14 as his final argument. That verse comes from Exodus chapter 16, verse 18. It's right in the middle of the story of the manna from heaven. Which, by the way, if you're from the South, you know the manna was grits. Just wanted to make sure you knew that. Anyway, because God loves the South. So here we go. Um, that's who loves everyone. I just like to say that for fun. So anyway, because no other thing. Like, what is this grits? It's so weird. I know, but it's so good. Put some cheese on it and some butter. All right, so when God prevented the manna, 
he told them each day, understanding this verse, you need to understand what's going on. When God gave them the manna, he said, each day, take what you need, and that's it. Take what you need. That's all I want you to do. Take what you need. If you got more than what you needed, it's going to go bad the next day. So there's no point in taking more than what you need because it's not even going to be, you can't eat it the next day. It's going to be gross. God, the writer, he do that. Here's why. God wanted him, them, the, the Israelites, to trust him every day to meet their needs. That's why he did it. You got to trust me every day. You can only take what you need. And if you try to take more, it's not going to work. So doing that every day is going to make you say, I'm only going to take what I need. Better be here tomorrow. Got to trust you, God. That's what God wanted. God wanted them to trust him every day to supply their need. That's the whole point. God wants us to trust him every day. Not just, all right, I'm trusting you this year. I'm going to go work hard. He wants us to trust every day. So if you had a lot of people in your family during the Exodus, if you had a lot of people in your family, a bunch, you gathered much. Look at verse 15. Whoever gathered much had nothing left over. If you're the chambers, you would go out there, you would have to gather a whole lot, but we would eat it all because we have Aiden, right? And we would eat it all, um, and, and me, and after that, there'd be nothing left over, not because I didn't get enough, but because we just ate it all. That's the first half of verse 15. And whoever had gathered little had no lack, which means if we had just a tiny bit of our people, we would gather just a little bit, but we, we always had enough. There was no lack. We had enough because we just got a little bit, and whenever we ate it, that's all we needed, boom, it was done. So verse 15 Whoever gathered much had nothing left over. Whoever gathered little had no lack. Everybody had what they're needing. So now that we understand the story, what's Paul saying in verse 13 and 14? As I've already written in number five, he's balancing the argument. He's balancing the argument. How is he balancing the argument? Here's the principle. Here's the principle. No one needs a large surplus. No one should have a shortage. That's the principle. No one needs a large surplus. No one should have a shortage. Think about that, what that means in our church. If you have a massive surplus of resources, you don't need a massive sur- sur- surplus of resources. No one in our church should have a shortage. If someone needs food, then they should be fed by the people in the church that have the surplus. That's the point that he's saying. This is not socialism for at least two reasons. Number one, it's voluntary. It's not mandatory. Number two, this is not the government enforcing it. It's God's people doing it freely. It's the church being the church. It's at least two reasons. We could go down that road forever. The principle in the church for the Corinthians, as no one needs a large surplus, no one should have a shortage. That's the point that he's trying to make. God, Jesus wants us to be so transformed by the gospel that we love to take our resources and give them away to people, massive state of surplus, because we love Jesus and the gospel so much. That's the point that he's trying to make. Remember what Ephesians 4.28 says. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, and now he talks about Christians, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. We work and get money so that we can live and so that we can share with people who are in need. That's the whole point of making money in Ephesians 4.28. That's the whole point. So God gives us money so that we can share it, not keep a surplus. Now, 
If you have real honest questions about what that means for long-term future planning for your family, I'll have those with you. I promise you. Because I know it's, it's more complicated than that, FUD. It's more complex. I get it is, okay? And I will have that conversation with you. But stick with me on the principle here. I get that God wants us to plan for our families, but I also think the Bible's saying what the Bible says. So if you have questions, please talk to me about that. I'm not saying, like, empty out your accounts and don't ever plan for the future and your kids can just have no shoes. I'm not saying that, okay? So talk to me later about that. But don't forget this, 1 John three seventeen: If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother... This is your fellow believer in Christ in need and closes his heart against him. How does God's love abide in him? First John's over and over talking to us about assurance of salvation. If you see people in need in your church and you don't help them, are you a Christian? That's what John's saying. Are you really a Christian? So that's a pretty strong side, right? That's a strong side. Here's the balance. Here's the balance. We've got to put in 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, 7 through 12. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because when we were with you, we weren't idle. When we were with you, we didn't eat anybody else's bread without paying for it. We toiled, we labored, we worked day and night that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we have the right, but to give you ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone's not willing to work, then don't let him eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness. Some of y'all are lazy. They're indolent. They're not busy at work. They're just busy bodies. Now, such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus to do their work quietly and earn your own living. So there's the balance. We as Christians who have surplus are to help. And the people we help are not those that can actually make the money for themselves. There are people in our churches that, that are working and still need extra help or they can't. And those are the ones that we're supposed to help. That's what he's trying to say. So there's the balance. When we say there, no one needs a large surplus, no one should have a shortage, those that have the shortage that are helped are not people who are just indolent or lazy. It's the people who are working and still need help. And our hearts should overflow to help them. Even those who are indolent, we still go to them. We love them. We care for them. We meet their needs. And we just we say, hey, by the grace of Jesus, let's do this together. I'll come alongside you. I'll help you. I'll walk through this. I know life is tough. Life can certainly kick you down sometimes, and it can be difficult. And so we still come to them. But the surplus of those who have lots need to be freely giving to those who cannot get it themselves. And if we're able-bodied, we should work, of course. This is what Paul's saying. And he's looking at Corinthians, and he's saying, those people in Jerusalem cannot do it for themselves. They can't. They need your help. To provide, And the sovereign Lord, who could totally switch the situation here at any moment, right now that's not the case. You have this chance with your surplus, Corinthians, because they were a very wealthy city. You have a chance with your surplus to bless the socks off of these Jews, uh, Jews in Jerusalem and help them right now. And that's possible because the Lord has given you this grace in Christ so that you are now, uh, have a, a transformed heart that you want to give. You can practice gospel-centered generosity. Because no one needs a surplus and no one should have a shortage. And right now in Jerusalem, there's a shortage. And right now, Corinthians, you have a surplus. Bless them based on what Jesus has done for you. That's the, that's the final closing argument he uses. The final balance brought to it. So what does it mean for me and you then? What does this mean? Here's some brass tacked application, bottom line stuff for you. Really simple stuff, straightforward. Work hard. Work hard. Let the church know if you have a need. 
Let the elders and the deacons know if you have a need so that we can meet it. If you have a surplus, seek to help others with it. Don't keep a lot of resources just to yourself whenever you can share them. No one you know in your church family should ever be in lack. They just shouldn't. If you have the resources, you should love to help them. All of this should be voluntary. All of this should be based on the gospel. None of it is done out of guilt. All of it is done because Christ Jesus became poor. And so in his poverty, he made us rich. And therefore, on that pattern of love, we give freely that way. So what does that mean? Here's what it means. Pray that you and I would become gospel-centered, generous givers. That we would, there's, we're going to do a whole other sermon on this in two weeks, by the way, when we get to 2 Corinthians 9. Number two coming on giving. But right today, this is what it means. Pray that you would become a gospel-centered, generous giver. Also, this means start with your local church. Start with, if this is your church, Remedy Church, start with your local church as a place for you to give to a place that requires faith. Okay, okay, okay. Oh, that's faith. That's what you should do. Start with that. Start by giving to your local church to a place that requires faith. If you don't give to a local church, start giving to your local church. Give in light of the gospel and not according to guilt. Give in light of the gospel and not according to guilt. Ask God to help, not this. Ask him to help you. Lord, help me trust you. And after you give to your local church, the rest of your money that you have, use it in a God-glorifying manner to pay your bills and help others. All of it is still given to us to, to live out lives of active worship to God. And last principle is this. Try not to, and I'll have a detailed conversation with you because I know it's complex. But here's the principle. Try not to live a life with huge surpluses. I think that's the point. Try not to live a life of huge surpluses because there's probably people around you that could, that could benefit from it. I will talk to you about that, what that means later. But if you have a question, please ask me because I know it's a little more complex than, than that, but it is that straightforward in the text. So let's close with this. Verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Think on this fact that Christ Jesus left the incarnation, or left heaven and became incarnate, living a perfect life the entire time, knowing that it would lead to the cross. And he did it all willingly, and he did it all perfectly. He lived a perfect life. He went to the cross. And because he died on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins, we now don't have to live this life of poor, sinful destitution. But now we can be uh, rich with forgiveness, that we will receive our inheritance with the saints in heaven one day, and that we will be with Christ, forgiven with him forever. It's all based on that. Let's pray.